Uh, today we begin a new chapter. This is chapter three called Practicing Dharma. And the name of this particular section is called The Path to Peace. Our practice is to work at removing desire, aversion, and delusion. The mental afflictions that can be found within each and every one of us. They are what hold us in the round of becoming and birth and prevent us from achieving peace of mind. Realizing peace involves not only working with the mind but with the body and speech as well. Before you can practice with your body and speech you must be practicing with your mind. But if you only practice with your mind and neglect your body and speech that won't work either. Practicing with the mind until it's smooth, refined and beautiful is similar to producing a finished wooden pillar or plank. Before you can have an attractive varnished pillar, you must first cut a tree. Then you cut off the rough parts, the roots and the branches. Before you split it, saw it and work it, practicing with the mind is the same. You have to work with the coarse things first. You work through the rough to reach the smooth. In Dharma practice, you aim to pacify and purify the mind, but it's difficult to do. So, you have to begin with externals, body and speech, working your way inward until you reach that which is smooth and resplendent. You can compare it with a finished piece of furniture, such as chairs and tables. They may be attractive now, but once they were just rough, rough bits of wood with branches and leaves that had to be planed and worked. This is the way you obtain furniture that is beautiful, or a mind that is perfect and pure. So this is um, spelling out the very basics of, of Dhamma practice, that um, even though we might think of meditation as being a, a, a sort of work on the mental realm, that he's pointing out that it naturally, intrinsically involves body and speech uh, as well, but also you can't really work with your body and, uh, your, body and your speech um, without uh, bringing your mind into it. And so you, uh, you really need to be bringing all three of these aspects, the, um, uh, the formations of, of uh, body and speech and mind, uh, all into the field of, of training. Um, the example he gives, uh, probably most of us here have not cut down a tree and milled it by hand and then <laughs> turned it into a, a, a plank or a pillar, that would have been a very normal activity for Lumpucha uh, growing up, and also when he was when he was young, the, uh, about ninety percent of Thailand was covered with forests, which is not the same now. It's about five percent, maybe ten percent, but it's um, it's definitely a lot less uh, trees around. And in in his uh, early part of his life, if you did need to build something, you'd literally go to the forest, find a good tree, uh, cut it down. And then together with some of your other companions from the village, you'd set up a, a trestle and slice the wood up and, uh, and uh, say, um, bring it to, to a finished completion. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, the shrine table at Chithurst, any of you who've been to Chithurst, uh, in the shrine room, the oak slab uh, that forms the, the front of the shrine there at Chithurst, uh, that was sliced up by myself and Ajahn Anando, the previous Ajahn Anando, uh, we were uh, given a, um, uh, a, a 
northeast Thai uh, cross-cut saw. So it's a it's a, a long a long saw about probably a meter and a half, two meters long blade, uh, and the blade is set at ninety degrees to the the saw. So it's it's a two-handled saw that you 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 have, um, and so that it's a um, it's designed to be so you you uh, you go the the movement this way, but the blade cuts that way. If you can see, so rather than the blade being up and down, the blade is across, so that um, we had a uh, a very large oak tree, uh, an old oak tree that was right by the the weir at Chithurst uh, near the dam. And the, those of you who've been to Chithurst, uh, where the lake is, there was a very very old oak tree that had been hit by lightning and had died a long time before. So it was a standing solid dead oak tree, and so uh, we we took that down. And then <laughs> carried the, the the log, which is about three or four feet thick. I mean, it was more than a meter thick. It was big, a big log. We carried it down the trail and had it set up by the nuns' cottage, where the the garage is down. Well, with the um, little shrine by the front of a local cottage. We sat that up there, and so then we we sliced this tree into I think five or six different chunks. And so. Uh, the uh, the shrine table at uh, Chithurst in, in the shrine room is one of those large oak slabs that were cut by hand. It's, it's very it's very hard work. <laughs> it's also it takes a lot of coordination between the two people sawing because you have to you have to get into a rhythm. It's more like more like uh, a kind of um, uh, more like sort of dancing together rather than than any a, a kind of um, uh, any other normal sort of activity, you really have to be completely attuned with the other person, and that uh, when you're letting go, they're they're picking up the tension and cutting the 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 timber. And it was a a, a large dead oak tree, so it was uh, very very solid and um, took a, a long time, but it was very well worth doing. So I have personally had a bit of an experience of cutting a tree and turning it into smooth planks. <laughs> So rather like training the mind, it does take a, a lot of work to uh, to do that, and a lot of cooperation and uh, mindfulness. You have like a chalk line along the edge of the of the log, and you have to <laughs> keep your eye on the on the line the whole time, and then also keeping as well as keeping the rhythm of the back and forth strokes uh, going. So I think uh, my memory is we did it once with that big oak tree, and then we politely parked the. <laughs> The two-handled saw is probably still up in the rafters of the workshop at uh, at Shithurst, but um, it was very lovely and very very good to do. And the um, the the other slabs of oak, we, as I said, we cut it into about five or six slabs, and the other ones were sort of stacked up and have been uh, and been sort of airing and curing for many years, and were slowly used for different things around Chithurst. I'm not sure what other other purposes they've served, but there was a. If you go to the shrine room in the house at Chithurst, that was uh, uh, Ajahn Ananda and myself um, contributed that. Of course, as soon as we, we cut it absolutely dead dead straight, but then oak being oak, then it <laughs> it moved after we uh, after we cut it. So it's slightly got a bit of a twist on it, but uh, that's the uh, the way the world is. So practicing with the mind is the same. You have to work through the coarse things first. You work through the rough to reach the smooth. The um, 
the establishment of mindfulness around or paying attention to action and speech you know, as we so coming to a monastery or coming onto a retreat, then you have the the establishment of discipline around action and speech. You have the the monastery standards, the precepts, the the routine, uh, and, and so forth. So that's like the a supportive framework. But the the main work that is being done uh, is uh, in the mind, moment moment by moment, and so that they all work together. But uh, as uh, Lumpur Cha would also often say, that it's only the mind that can really be liberated. The body and the speech can't really be liberated. It's only the, the mind that can really be totally, uh, totally liberated. So that you use the, the, the mindfulness and control of action and speech to create a skillful, skillful environment and uh, to make things uh, as, as supportive and as beneficial as possible. But um, you're never going to find perfection or completion in the world of, uh, of perceptions and conditioned things. So it's um, the, the, the establishment of a wholesome environment, uh, an environment of, of peacefulness, of respectfulness, of kindness, uh, harmlessness and so forth. That creates a, the most supportive environment whereby the nature of mind can be recognized. And so it's... Uh, those aspects are extraordinarily important. You can't, uh, if you try to ignore um, speech and action and just work on the mind, then that doesn't lead to very good results. Um, but the, the the place of liberation is uh, is the mind, and so that and it can be that you we can get so focused on trying to perfect things in terms of the speech or our action. So we're trying we get focused on doing doing everything perfectly and correctly. We kind of become very obedient to the system of how things should be done. We can we can become very good at being obedient to a system, but uh, no matter how perfect and polished your your uh, your conduct might be, that in itself that that kind of precision can't really liberate. It's not a a state of liberation in itself, and so that those aspects are important, but they they can't uh, they can't be the whole of the story. That it's really the the, um, uh, the mind that is the primary quality. And as the Buddha says at the um, beginning of the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. And so that that is the uh, the, the kind of uh, the relationship. All three are crucial and essential, but it's um, the mind is the the uh, the place of liberation. So, thoughts, questions, reflections. Yes, you could see you're on the brink of saying something. Yes, carry on. Yeah. Before coming here, I was in a Tibetan monastery, and uh, they they were saying often that uh, this uh, this term of arahant is different from. Uh, Alignment, so full alignment. So if you are harmed, you have to you have to go further to to get enlightened, full enlightened. Alignment. You are not complete. You know. <laughs> I, I know that I know of that as a view, but uh, I I don't feel it's particularly accurate. The, the Buddha was an arahant. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samasambuddhassa. That either the homage to the uh, the blessed, the uh, the the noble, perfectly enlightened one. So he's arahato. He, the Buddha was an arahant. So it's a it's a different way of uh, of speaking about things. Particularly, there's a few sutras in the Northern Buddhist tradition, like the Lotus Sutra, um, 
uh, where it talks about arahant arahantship as a, um, a kind of uh, an, an an illusory endpoint that um, the uh, that is a, a kind of um, uh, say something that is a, a, a an attractive goal for small-minded people but actually uh, full enlightenment is something beyond that so then they, they talk about Buddhahood as being full enlightenment but and uh, so uh, uh, even though it says if you misrepresent or you criticize the Lotus Sutra you create incredible bad karma you'll go to the hell go into the hell realms for a long long time I don't feel too shy about saying I don't agree with that <laughs> the um, the uh, there's a chapter called the, the the magic city I think and it's in this the um, it starts off with Sariputta saying oh I'm so I'm so miserable I've totally blown it I'm an arahant and I'm never going to be reborn so it's impossible for me to become a Buddha oh what a fool am I oh me miserum you know as it says in the old Latin texts you know uh, I've blown I've really blown it I'm an arahant and and so um, I, I can never become a Buddha. And so then the Buddha says to him, well, actually, sorry, Puta, <laughs> that's not the case. Uh, and that arahantship is just a, a, um, a temporary stage along the way and that you, you, know, you can indeed carry on and realize Buddhahood. And then he says, uh, he gives this example of the um, travelers going across a desert. And uh, say the, a Buddha is a, like the caravan leader taking this group of, of wanderers across the desert. And people are very hard and tired and hungry and exhausted and despairing. And so the caravan leader, who has some magical powers, conjures up this image of an oasis and a, 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 a city where people can find food and shelter and refreshment. And then the group reaches this oasis and, and they, oh, this is amazing. We can We can eat, we can have some cold drink, we can bathe, we can refresh ourselves, we can rest. Ah, fantastic. And then after they've rested, quote-unquote, rested themselves and refreshed themselves after a few days, then the caravan leader says, actually, this was all just an illusion. Uh, And really, there's much more distance to go. But now that you have this this feeling of refreshment, now you're you're able to carry on. And so they, oh, well, okay, well, that that was a bit of a trick, but okay, we're happy that you've enabled us to be refreshed. And so, okay, let's keep going. And so that parable of the magic city, I think it's called, is saying, and then it's represented arahantship is that illusory uh, oasis in the middle of the desert, according to the Lotus Sutra. Um, that's not backed up in the slightest by the Pali Canon, <laughs> and that uh, the uh, the arahantship is is held in a very very different way. So you said the Buddha was an arahant, and that he's uh, and that that state of enlightenment is the same for a Buddha as uh, as for a quote unquote regular arahant. It's just a Buddha has developed other spiritual faculties to a very very high degree, so they can they can teach others and they have a whole range of other uh, spiritual um, abilities that uh, an ordinary kind of an ordinary arahant doesn't have. But the state of liberation is exactly the same. So that. Uh, that is part of the picture of some of the northern Buddhist teachings. The Lotus Sutra is just one example. You, um, uh, but it just uh, to me it's representing what what they are calling arahantship. Yeah, I would say is not they're not using the word in the same way as they are in the Pali Canon. 
it's just uh, uh, to me it's a misrepresentation and that um, the uh, if you meet with people who are very experienced practitioners from the northern tradition then they they tend not to talk in those ways or they don't make uh, those same kind of distinctions so uh, it's uh, one of those uh, those things to one is encouraged to read with discernment but I have uh, uh, an, another sutra that's often quoted uh, to sort of put the, the the arahants into sort of an inferior position is the Vimalakirti Sutra um, and so uh, I was actually just asked to write a blurb for a translation of the Vimalakirti Sutra and in that um, again Venerable Sariputta is the, is the fall guy in that, in the Lotus Sutra, when Sariputta hears this and the Buddha tells the story of the, the magic city in the desert, then it's the Sariputta is, oh, what joy! How, how great is the joy! Uh, fantastic, amazing! I haven't ruined my, I haven't ruined my possibilities. I can still become a Buddha! Hooray! 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 <laughs> so it uh, it puts down the the kind of realization of arahanship as a sort of definitely in a pejorative way, as a sort of inferior. Yeah, inferior goal. Yeah, and it's it's re- it's represented like that. So in the Vimalakirti Sutra, it's equally, if not more, pejorative, negative in its presentation. So you have it starts off with Vimalakirti, who's a, a well well respected layperson. He he's apparently he's ill, and the Buddha's saying, "Oh, Vimalakirti, the great lay disciple, is ill." He's very highly respected for his wisdom. Who would like to go and visit him? And all these great arahants say, well, I'm not going to go. He's too wise for me. He'll make me look like an idiot. And they'll tell these stories of how Vimalakirti showed up their kind of shallow understanding in the past. Yeah. And finally, uh, Venerable Sariputta says, okay, well, I'll go. He goes to, to visit Vimalakirti. And then when he goes to the layperson's house, then um, there's this, in the different chapters, he um, uh, uh, and it's interesting. This translation I was asked to do a blurb for. Uh, they were quite. Um, they took. They went to great pains to, to saying that you know the Vimalakirti Sutra isn't criticizing the Vinaya. It's just trying to give a a more sort of profound perspective on on uh, the um, uh, spiritual practice. But you get things like um, Sariputta comes along. And he re- and the house is completely empty. It's appearing like there's no there's no furniture there. And then he says, "Oh, the house has got no furniture. Where where are the where are the elders going to sit down?" And the Vimalakirti has made all the furniture disappear through his psych- psychic power. It's still there, but he's made it invisible. And then he says to Sariputta, "Sariputta, venerable sir, did you come here for the Dharma or did you come here for a chair?" <laughs> and then as the dialogue continues. <laughs> Then uh, sorry, Putin notices the sun is getting near to to the to the zenith to midday, and he's saying, he says it's nearly noon, uh, uh, and the, the the venerables have not been offered their meal yet. Is uh, is the layperson ever going to offer any food? And and Vimalakirti says, venerable sir, have you come here for the dharma or have you come here for something to eat? <laughs> and then at a certain point, this this goddess comes along, uh, who's. Um, uh, makes an appearance and she rains down these flowers kind of celestial flowers out of the sky and then Sariputta is trying to sort of brush these flowers off his robe and then and then uh, Vimalakirti says are you think you're going to be polluted by these celestial flowers just because it was a it was a female deity who dropped them on you 
you know, are you are you corrupted by the by these flowers? So it's kind of you know putting the the great arahants down a little small minded, worried about food, worried about a place to sit, and worried about you know, contact with something that's come from a, a a female deity. And so it's a, it's definitely what they call mythic defamation, de- defaming, a mythic making fun of, of, of another group for the, your own spiritual purposes. So to me, I, I read those as kind of polemical treatises. It's a kind of more, our team is better than your team. The B team, the Bodhisattva team, we're better than the Arahant team. B team, A team, B team, A team. So that it's best not to get caught into those dualities, I would say. But um, uh, it was interesting being asked to write a blurb for a translation of the Vimalakirti Sutra. So I... Uh, um, uh, they've, they sent me a copy of it, <laughs> but uh, it, it's because it is uh, there. There's an obviously to me there's an obvious intention to put down the uh, uh, the, the Southern Buddhist uh, scriptures, the Pali Canon, and to to make fun of some of those aspects. And uh, the, the the enlightened layperson is as far kind of superior as. Uh, to all these other you know, poor fools who are who are the kind of Arahant disciples, so uh, that to me to, is even though it's, it's put in very high-minded language, it's actually the mentality behind it is very childish, quite honestly. Like our team is better than your team. You know, I support Manchester United, not not Liverpool. It's like <laughs> Tottenham Hotspur, no Chelsea. It's like. It's really well. It's just your team, and it's a kind of um, uh, making fun of the other lot. And I, seriously, I think it's a, a, that kind of tribalistic mentality taking a position. And when you meet people from uh, who are really you know, great, uh, say masters of the of the northern Buddhist tradition, people like the Dalai Lama or or Master Shunhua, who was a great. Uh, master of, and friend of Lumpur Sumedho came and brought, came uh, here in the in the eighties, and um, I met him a few times in the states. They just they, they, that attitude is not there at all. It's not. There's no kind of um, uh, that sort of uh, superiority, what they call the superiority conceit. Uh, so that uh, uh, I feel that it's a um, you know, there are reasons why those things get get represented, and it's not as though in the Pali Canon you've got very similar things. Where the Buddha makes fun of the Brahmins. You know, they're similar myth- mythic defamation of Brahmins you get in the Pali Canon. So it's not just the Northern Buddhist tradition criticizing the Southern. You get the the, the in the Pali Canon you get the the Brahmins get get a bad treatment. There's one particular sutta called Five Five Things Practiced by Brahmins that are that are not practiced by dogs. <laughs> and it's com- com- literally comparing how Brahmins operate and how dogs operate, and the dogs come out on top. <laughs> the dogs make a, a much more spiritually elevated than the Brahmins. But to me, it's like, that's definitely mythic defamation. It's like, kind of, whether the Buddha actually said it or not, is I, I couldn't say, but it's it's in the Pali Canon. You can look at, in the Book of the Fives in the... In the numerical discourses, five things practiced by Brahmins that are no longer practiced by dogs. <laughs> anyway, so to continue.
Therefore, the right path to peace, the way the Buddha showed for attaining true happiness, is sila, morality, samadhi, meditative concentration, and wisdom. This is the path of practice. It is the way to complete abandonment of craving, attachment, aversion, and confusion. This path involves going against our habitual tendencies of taking it easy and wanting enjoyment and comfort. So we have to, we have to be ready to endure some difficulty and put forth effort. The Buddha taught that this is the way the practice is for all of us. All of his disciples who finished their work and became fully enlightened had previously been ordinary worldly beings like us. They had arms and legs, eyes and ears, greed and anger, just like us. They didn't have any special characteristics that made them particularly different from us. They practiced and brought forth enlightenment from the unenlightened, beauty from ugliness, and great benefit from that which was useless. You must understand that you have the same potential. You are made up of the five aggregates, just as they were. You have a body, pleasant and unpleasant feelings, memory and perception, thought formations and consciousness, as well as a wandering and proliferating mind. You can be aware of good and evil. Everything's the same. Those who became enlightened in the Buddha's time were no different from us. They all started out as ordinary, unenlightened beings. Some even had been gangsters and murderers. The Buddha inspired them to practice for the attainment of path and fruition. And these days, in similar fashion, people like you are inspired to take up the practice of morality, meditation and wisdom. So uh, again, there are quite a few things there. So the um, the path involves going against our habitual tendencies. Against the stream is a standard uh, way of, of describing things in the in the Pali Canon. And, uh, going against the stream, going against the the current of our habitual tendencies, and going against the stream. Any of you who have ever tried to walk upstream, <laughs> up a river, then you get but you get buffeted by the current. Uh, you have to push against the, the, the flow of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the river. And as he says, so we have to be ready to endure some difficulty and put forth effort. And again, speaking of Master Hua, one of his, um, like Lumpo Chai, who's very good at short, pithy um, Dhamma uh, statements, that the Buddha Dharma arises from difficulty. The more difficult, the better. So, so the... Uh, you're looking for the place of, of uh, the way of no hassle. <laughs> it, uh, that uh, I would say is the, the, that's the slow way, and that we're not looking for or, or considering that difficulty in and of itself is purifying, but in order to go against the habits of of opinion, attaching to opinions and emotions and uh, ideas, memories, um, the the wish for for comfort and convenience, then necessarily as a, a going against the stream that's involved in that. I feel also this point that Lumpur's making is that uh, even though we can kind of glamorize the people who appear in the, the scriptures and say, oh, they, they had so much paramita or they had such good karma to be um, born in, in the time of the Buddha or that um, they, are, they are very special people, they're not like us, we're really different, this is the, the Dhamma ending age and so on. I think this, this point that Lumpur is making is that uh, that we can glamorize those those things, but actually, in in many uh, respects, all, in all in important respects, the people who are we read about in the scriptures who are enlightened were really just the same as us. As he said, some were even 
uh, gangsters and murderers, and that we can be very uh, pejorative. We can look down upon, oh, I'm, I'm so weak, I'm not good enough, I, I've got too many problems, too many obstacles, um, I, I couldn't possibly make it in this lifetime, maybe another lifetime, or you know, uh, it's, uh, I, I, uh, I don't really have the resources to reach full liberation. And that I think that this encouragement from, from Lumpur is, like, is saying, yes, you do. <laughs> uh, and, that, uh, and he would say that, you know, if you've got enough, uh, enough uh, say, motivation to come along to the monastery, to spend time here, to even spending a, an observance day, practicing meditation, listening to the teachings, doing sitting and walking meditation all night long, he said, you know, you've got a lot of the, the, the resources necessary for, uh, for entering the stream, for, for being um, committed to, to the path to enlightenment. So we can, uh, again, be a bit overwhelmed by our habits of self-view and think, oh, yeah, but you don't know me, Ajahn. I've got, <laughs> I got some really immovable problems. I'm really, I'm different. You know, I've got, I've got problems, capital P. Uh, and that, um, that uh, say, that, that sense of um, overlooking or, or, or dismissing the, that spiritual potential that, that we all have, we can override it just by habitual judgment and, and ways that we, we talk about ourselves or relate to ourselves and that um, so that the uh, uh, the ugly duckling is a, a, I think a good fairy tale the, the, the story of the ugly duckling that uh, is you know criticized by others but also assumes that, that, that the the other uh, the other um, companions are telling the truth like you're just uh, you know just an ugly duckling you you know you don't belong you know, get out of town and so forth but then when the ugly duckling grows up, then there's a swan. Me, a swan? What? Look in the lake, look in the lake. And so then uh, when the ugly duckling has grown up and realizes, my goodness, I'm a swan, that's, uh, that uh, is, uh, I feel, a good uh, mythical way of representing that, uh, our judgment about where we're at and, uh, and um, what lies within us. We can overlook that by just believing our, our thoughts and, and critical negative judgments because the attention goes to our laziness our selfishness our greediness our aversion our, our complaining mind or our anxiety or uh, lustfulness or or uh, fear and anxiety and so forth there's an, in, speaking of the ugly duckling there's an interesting story out of thailand i can share which is there's a, a one of the um a monastery is a big monastery in Bangkok. is called Wat Trimit. Uh, it literally means the monastery of the three friends. Trimit means three friends, Mitra, three uh, three friends. And um, the uh, in the in the nineteen late fifties or early sixties, um, there was uh, an abbot came in who was doing a lot of building work. <laughs> it's a renovation of the monastery. And it was after the Second World War. Then Thailand became a little bit more prosperous, and and so. Uh, and the country was recovering from from those difficult times, and so he thought, well, we should. Uh, there's some areas of the monastery that are really run down and and kind of fallen apart, so we should fix everything up. And so there was this little um, shrine room that was off at the edge of a particular courtyard, a, a cloister, and uh, it was the, the roof was kind of fallen in, and it was really filled with dust and cobwebs. And there was this big Buddha image inside that was really kind of kind of ugly. It was kind of 
it was I had a plaster finish and it was not very well painted and it was a bit neglected and there's bits of old you know sticks of incense were, were were there and it was a very kind of unloved and uncared for corner of the monastery so he thought okay let's let, we'll, we'll fix this up so we need to um, clear things out and and so they took the roof off and they got a crane they started to try and move the Buddha image they found the Buddha was quite heavy so they got a crane and they start and they put a sling around the the knees of the Buddha image and started to lift it up and then the crane buckled this metal crane buckled and they thought wow this really is heavy this is strange and so then because the crane buckled and the Buddha Rupa dropped you know three or four feet and, and then the the abbot heard that oh they, you know the they, the, the this Buddha, they're trying to move the Buddha image and he just broke the crane so he went along to have a look and he saw that the plaster had broken away in a certain part of the image and he could see this this kind of black uh, surface inside and he thought oh it looks like this plaster is just a kind of an outer coating and there's there's some kind of other finish inside so he said you know, get me a hammer and chisel. <laughs> So then he started chiseling off more of the plaster and then he scraped away some of this black tar <coughs> coating and underneath it was gold. And they found, they, they took the, 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 the plaster off and they found the whole image was solid gold, like five tons of gold. <laughs> and they, they reckon, they, they don't know, there was, no, there was no written record of what happened, but they think uh, when the Burmese army was coming in about 200 years ago, the, um, then the, they this golden image they thought well let's protect it so they covered it in plaster and gave it a paint job and they thought well, they'll, they'll ignore this and because uh, it's not it doesn't look very nice and they'll, and they'll overlook it and um, and so it will keep it safe by covering it up in this way but then I guess because of the war the people who'd done the, the cover up either had to run away or they got, got killed or uh, didn't survive but the story got lost, and so now at Tri what Trimit, they <laughs> naturally <laughs> they're extremely pleased to find this, and so then they they built up a, a a kind of a large shrine in the middle of the monastery and carried this five ton golden Buddha image up, and it's now in a very uh, a prominent place in the middle of the monastery. But I think that's the supreme ugly duckling story. That, that, it looked like a kind of rubbishy image that was a bit neglected and, and no one thought it had any value at all. And then inside, it's pure gold. So you never know that uh, with, within us, um, uh, maybe maybe you have to be dropped to <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, something that helps the things to open up to reveal that uh, you know, inside that it's not we're not just kind of. Um, our superficial judgments are not necessarily reliable. Also, as um, as uh, he said, you know, there was um, disciples, great disciples of the Buddha. That some of them were, you know, it wasn't just Angulimala who was a murderer who became an arahant, but there are you know, other disciples of his that um, that were um, you know, responsible for um, uh, for. You know, killing other people and or stealing things that were quite uh, um, uh, quite a shady or you know, a, a, a um, unskillful background. It, it wasn't just sort of one case of a of a murderer becoming the Buddha's disciple. So it was not uh, not that uncommon that people had 
dodgy backgrounds, and both for the nuns and, and the monks. As one, one of the nun stories is that um, uh, she found out that her husband uh, had only married her to get uh, to get her wealth, um, and that uh, he had uh, I forget the 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 details of the story, but uh, she'd fallen in love with him and said she wanted to marry him, and that. Um, he, but he only got together with her because he wanted to get his hands on her, her jewelry and her, her, her riches, and so um, and he was going to kill her, and so she killed him instead. <laughs> that uh, uh, again, I, I, I'll fish out the details of the story, but uh, he uh, um, the, he was uh, was about to push her off a cliff, and she figured out what was going to happen, so she switched it around, and then. He was on the way to. He was on his way to execution, and she saw him out the window and thought, "Ooh, that's a handsome-looking bloke." <laughs> so, so she persuaded him to stop his execution. So then she married him, thought she's going to be able to convert him and bring him around. But he thought, "Okay, well, I'm not going to get killed today. This is great." But the cliff, yeah. Mm. Turned around and he, she pushed him off. Yes. So then she realized, I think I've done something really bad. <laughs> and she became an enlightened nun. She became one of the great Arahant Bhikkhunis. <laughs> yeah, Bada, Bada Kundala Kesa. Kundala Kesa. Curly haired. Bada with curly hair. So also, when, uh, when I was with Lumpo Cha, one of the, the, the monks that uh, used to come and spend time at Wat Pananachat, um, a Thai monk, very, very sweet older guy. He'd, he'd gone forth in middle age. And so I just knew him as, he didn't speak a word of English, but he'd, he'd come and spend time at Wat Pananachat now, now and then. And uh, he was a very, very sweet, friendly old guy and uh, was, uh, was uh, very... Uh, uh, very easy to get along with, had very very um, undemanding kind of character, and called and he was known as Posui. And uh, uh, I found out later that he was, he was actually a hitman who'd been hired to shoot Ajahn Chah. Mm-hmm. So that's how he became a monk. Was he was a hitman, mm-hmm. and that um, he had uh, been uh, he was he'd been hired uh, to to kill Ajahn Chah by certain people in the area <laughs> and uh, he'd been going along to Wopapong to try and choose his moment when he was going to make his shot so he sort of disguised himself as a sort of lay devotee and went along and was sort of following the routine and going to visit fairly regularly but he got a bit too close to Lumpo Cha kind of hearing the Dhamma talks and we kind of hung around too much thought, oh this is really interesting <laughs> this, uh, well maybe I'll leave it till next week and he kind of got Closer and closer, and kind of showing up more and more often. Thinking, well, how am I going to do this? Because he's a really nice guy, and this is—he's got a lot of good things to say. Um, and then after a while, he realized, I'm going to bench. I'm going to um, quit the, the the job. And then he went to Ajahn Chah and confessed. He said, "You know, I've been coming along because I was hired to shoot you, but now I'm afraid I'm going to I'm going to renege on the contract. But I'm now afraid of the people who hired me. So is it okay if I stay here?" And, Lumpur said, yeah, you can stay, I'll, I'll protect you, don't worry. You know, if, you, if you stay here, you're safe. And then he ended up becoming a monk with, with Ajahn Chah. And 
and it was really hard to believe it. Poor Sui was a hitman for this. Life was pretty cheap in those. It was a virile kind of bandit country in northeast Thailand in those days. But uh, hiring a, a, a hitman was was definitely cheaper than buying a water buffalo. So, so it's a, he uh, managed to um, to bring him around. There's, and that was not the only incident. There was there was others as well. <laughs> you know, um, that Lumpo Cha brought around who were gangsters and. Uh, Wild boys. Also, um, uh, Yong Kicha, uh, who uh, he's now very, very ill in Thailand, but would come every Sunday. And so, um, their dad, his father, was a bit of a uh, of a an operator, shall we say, in his area, <laughs> and got into some trouble with some other local operators, and uh, and was his dad was killed by some other gangsters in their area. And so um, he, uh, Kicha and his brother, he wouldn't, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me telling this story, he's told it often enough himself. His, uh, his, he and his brother made this vow that they were, whatever they took, they were going to murder the, the guy who killed their dad. But, uh, and so <clears throat> then, um, uh, and I think the story goes that he was, uh, they were, he was just in his late teens, about 18 or 19, and they were really sort of, uh, uh, upset about their, the the death of their father, they said, "Yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to get this guy." And I think what happened, if I remember correctly, was that he went to Wat Tasung uh, uh, to get uh, a blessing from the Ajahn, you know, without telling the Ajahn what he was, what he wanted a blessing for. Like we've got this thing that we want to succeed at, and 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 uh, the Ajahn uh, Lumpur Rasi Lingdam. Um, Seemingly had some, either was very observant or he was uh, had some psychic powers, and he realized, you know, so what is it that you want success in? <laughs> and eventually, he so sort of drew it out of, of Kicha what uh, what the the project was and what he wanted success in, and he managed to persuade him like that's not going to benefit you or your brother or it's not going to benefit your father either. So, so uh, you know, and then he managed to persuade. Uh, Kichar to spend more time in the monastery, so he ended up appointing Kichar as kind of head of security at the monastery. He wasn't carrying a gun, <laughs> but he was like looking after the protection of, of the monastery. He said, "Okay, if you want to do something that's really useful, then you can you can look after protecting the monastery, and that could be your job." And so, uh, and so he became a very very ardent, dedicated Dhamma practitioner. He was the one leading the the week, the ceremonies every Sunday for years and years here. So even people with murderous intentions can be can be brought around, or who people have carried it out. So any thoughts, questions, reflections? I doubt whether anyone's come along here with any <laughs> homicidal intentions, but uh, but just giving you examples of how that even though there might be a lot of unskillfulness in the in the mix, then still that. That kind of the heart of gold literally can be uh, uncovered, uh, can be there, even though that the mind is badly drawn into unskillful activity. Okay, to continue. If the mind is able to look after itself, it's not so difficult to guard speech and bodily actions, since they are motivated and supervised by the mind. Mind 
is where the intentions for all your actions originate. You learn to look after yourself with mindfulness. The one who knows, who is the same, excuse me, who is the same one who formerly motivated you to perform unrestrained and harmful actions. Then, through restraint and caution, your speech and actions become graceful and pleasing to the eye and ear, while you yourself remain comfortable and at ease within this restraint. Continuous restraint, where you consistently take care with your actions and speech and take responsibility for your behavior, is sila. Being unwavering in the practice of mindfulness and restraint is samadhi. This is, sam- this is samadhi as an external factor in the practice used in keeping sila. However, it also has an inner, deeper side. Once the mind is intent in the practice and sila and samadhi are firmly established, you'll be able to investigate and reflect on your experience of different inner and outer phenomena. When the mind makes contact with different sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations or ideas, the one who knows will arise and establish awareness of like and dislike, happiness and suffering, and the different kinds of mental objects and conditions that you experience. If you're mindful, you will see the objects that pass into the mind and your reactions to them. The one who knows will automatically take them up as objects of contemplation. That aspect of discerning the good from the bad and the right from the wrong from among all the phenomena in your field of awareness is wisdom. This is wisdom in its initial stages and it matures as the practice progresses. This is the way morality, meditation and wisdom are practiced in the beginning. So there's a couple of points there in particular. Um, So through restraint and caution, your speech and actions become graceful, pleasing to the eye and ear, while you yourself remain comfortable and at ease within this restraint. So sometimes we can relate to restraint uh, as a sense of uh, being um, uncomfortably limited, like you're in a straitjacket, don't do this, don't do that, and the the sense of... of, um, uh, pressure or, or limitation but I would say one of the the hallmarks of the middle way and the practice of Buddha Dhamma is that that uh, restraint is not um, confining as he says you yourself remain comfortable and at ease within this restraint so that's that's something that uh, I feel is is helpful to uh, get a, a sense for and that it's that which in, in us which feels frustrated or limited by being told don't do this, don't do that, or or um, you know, this is you know this is right, that's wrong, I would say that which is generating frustration or or, or tension is very much driven by ignorance and self-view, and that the um, when the mind is really uh, awake and uh, and and not uh, in not say dominated by ignorance and self-view then um, the the quality of freedom is not being looked for in action and speech or going places or doing things but rather the quality of freedom is experienced in the nature of the mind itself that it doesn't have to be that the body is walking around or you've got lots of um, room about you or uh, an open sky or whatever um, or a, a, a range of activities that you can engage in and I feel, particularly in retreat mode, <laughs> then uh, all of us can get a bit of a sense of that—that that, uh, the, um, the 
the limitations and restraint is a way of simplifying the 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 experiential field, and that uh, and it can be no, it can be noticed how just sitting still with your eyes closed that there can be a great experience of freedom or spaciousness, even though you're not going anywhere, you're not sort of seeing anything, uh, not um, yeah, tasting or or, or, um, or listening to any anything in particular. So it's a very minimal range of sense activity, but the subjective sense of space and freedom can be very, very great. So I feel that that, um, that quality of of freedom and spaciousness, um, we keep looking for it in terms of a, a big room or going out for a walk or being able to go places and, and explore and have adventures and such like. But uh, you can be in a vast open landscape and still be really, uh, really in a, a limited and confined mind state. So um, that, uh, I feel that's a, a very uh, significant and helpful comment that he makes that. Yeah, restraint. There's restraint in action and speech, but you're comfortable and at ease. You're totally at home in uh, in the moment. And and Lumpo Cha himself was a very good example of that. that even though uh, Wat Bapong was known as an extremely strict monastery, and he was very, very much known as a uh, someone who had very very few personal needs and had a very very simple life. He was. You could tell he was completely at, at home. Completely. At, at ease, uh, with in the midst of that, what looked like restraint from the outside, but was there, there was a great spaciousness and uh, and sort of comfort and ease, and settledness uh, in the way he operated. Though the um, this uh, aspect of discerning the the good from the bad and right from wrong. Um, is uh, from among all phenomena in your field of awareness is wisdom. So as I was saying a few days ago, a few readings ago, um, if mindfulness is really, uh, if it's really samasati, if it's that that mindfulness is in tune with dhamma, the right mindfulness, then there's always an element of what is wholesome, what's unwholesome, what's uh, what's skillful, what's unskillful within that. And so that that... Um, and say that, and the more that develops, as he says, that uh, this is wisdom in its initial stages and matures as the practice progresses. So, if there's mindfulness, then that element of uh, of sila is a natural part of uh, of that attunement to the time, the place, the situation. Sometimes mindfulness is represented as just a kind of an act of of focusing on the present, being uh, attentive to what's going on. And functioning with a, a quality of, of uh, say, uh, see, steadiness uh, and undistractedness, but I would say that's more of an attention training. And you can have attention training; the mind can be focused without uh, it really being a, a samasati. It could be yes, as a, as a, a very definite quality of, of paying attention, uh, and that can be quite acute. But it does. It's not necessarily samasati or mindfulness. It's that's in accord uh, with dhamma. And so, uh, my impression of the number of the mindfulness trainings and uh, and related programs that you find in the world these days, a lot of it is attention training, and it's not doesn't really include the 
uh, the broader qualities of, of mindfulness and samasati uh, in, 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 insofar as I've looked at those things or met people who've been sort of involved in those programs or, or reading about those, those kind of programs. So any thoughts, questions? Yes. It seems that it's so difficult to keep this uh, mindfulness in the moment and not to decide anything like beforehand, <coughs> to really be quick uh, when when things change, because it looks like we almost always make our mind beforehand and what we're gonna do and what's next and so on. But to really uh, be in tune with the moment and to be ready to let go any idea, any concept, any plan like straight away when you feel it's uh, the right thing I think is the right thing to do to remove your previous decision like previous mode of doing it seems like really <laughs> really difficult mm -hmm. against the habit of, of the mind is there something <laughs> that was a good question Yeah, I think just recognizing wow this is really difficult that's <laughs> that's a lot of it we're just appreciating like if you're out on a hike and there's a, a really high steep hill, like well, that's a big hill. Mm. It's going to take it's going to take a lot to get up there. And so just recognizing the the uh, the the depth or the, the strength of the task that is ahead is one one big part of it. Also, it takes a kind of courage, a um, like a bravery, just to not have a plan or to just drop things and to be to be open to the present because often it's uh, the self-view is saying well what if and I should be and and uh, you know, and, and I, but I decided I would and well there's uh, that sense of vulnerability that can come from letting go of a, of a, of a plan or an idea uh, an opinion and being open to the present but I think it's a lot of what in artistic expression, like a lot of people are aiming at, both in, in say painting or poetry or music, or um, that that complete freshness to uh, to the the moment, and without kind of basically getting out of the way, <laughs> to to be fully attuned to the to the moment and alive to it, but without me. Uh, me getting in the way, me sort of intruding. I mean, we probably have a, a good example in the just in the chanting that we have. That the uh, you know, as soon as you think, oh, um, this is going well, or what you know, what what are the, uh, what are the um, what's the next what what are the next words, or uh, or that person's chanting out of tune. As soon as you start adding something onto it, then you lose your place. So you. You get distracted, or your your voice goes off. So it's uh, and you know I was not a musician, but uh, I've done a lot of chanting <laughs> over the years. And uh, but talking with musicians, uh, that's playing together with other people or playing uh, li uh, live music. Um, that's very much a part of like you 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 know the piece of music. You, your fingers know where to go. You know you know the piece. And just trusting that you know you know what to do, and then uh, attuning to the, the the situation who you're with, uh, and then uh, giving yourself to that to the the music, and whether it's whether it's scripted music like you know it's a uh, 
a you know you've got all the the notes that are written on a music sheet in front of you or whether it's more sort of free form then uh, it, i would say it's exactly that kind of um li uh, live attunement to the time the place the situation and being brave enough to let go of well i thought we were going to go here oh we're going there okay <laughs> and so that, that kind of bravery uh and readiness to um to, to not have my safety net or my plan or my preference and to be able to let that go it's, uh, so there's that's a part of it i think being ready to to be courageous and then also um uh reading the the feedback when when you find those moments of that having let go of the of the sort of planning and intending and and sort of uh self-based habits when when there are those clear moments of, of a genuine attunement and freshness then looking at the results of that okay having operated in that way what's the result and then uh, and so then that quality of of peacefulness and and uh, also a kind of sense of energy and aliveness um, and spaciousness i would say just getting a uh, a genuine appreciation for the results of the mind attuning in that way then that is it creates a, a kind of feedback loop mm. uh, speaking of bravery I, there's a story i like to tell about um this uh, the, uh person uh, who was doing the uh, oxford and cambridge entrance exams and um, so it, the the way that the the oxbridge entrance exams work is you have you have two sets of papers one is on your subject so if you're if you're applying for a course in french or you, or physics or mathematics you have half of the paper half of the, the of the exam is on your subject and the other half is what they call the general paper and they have equal weight you know it's not like your subject carries more weight than the general paper but they, they have got 50 50 weight and so uh uh so this is in order to get into the university you've got to pass the, the entrance exam um, and so uh, this uh, I, I, I forget what she was doing for the her subject but the um in the general paper they have a lot of uh, uh, of different questions like about 15 different questions and you can just choose one you know one topic and you and you write for three hours on that one topic so it's like it's a three-hour exam and you can just take one topic and just do a, a, an essay on that on that one topic, and uh, and so one of the questions. And there can be a huge variety of things. The the the, the topics like you know um, you know like what it could be like why why are we here, or um, do you think it's possible uh, to make the um, to power London from the current of the River Thames, or, or what's wrong with the French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be a huge. Uh, I mean, all sorts of different things. It's kind of, I don't know who makes up these questions. But uh, I, I did the Oxford and Cambridge exams, but uh, I, I didn't get a place there. But uh, doing the exams was was quite interesting. So uh, looking at the old papers, it's like, what well, is this? This is totally weird. Uh, so anyway, the question that this this student chose for um, in the general paper was, what is bravery? And she wrote, "This is oh. like that's the th for like a three-hour answer, like 
this is. And she got a full marks. <laughs> okay, we want her. <laughs> Which is, uh, and that apparently getting getting like full marks on an essay question like that is almost unheard of. They said yes. Good response. <laughs> a full demonstration and explanation. Yeah, this is. So seven o'clock has come round. So let's uh, call it to a a close there for today.